Hello, and thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. What is God's purpose for the world through Jesus? Find out next as we study Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 22. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11, through verse 26. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer— He has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. In the first verses of Acts chapter 3, we have a close-up view of life in the new community under Messiah's rule. We find the apostles swiftly setting out to fulfill the Great Commission to bear witness of the risen and reigning Jesus and tell the world that life and immortality is available to all men in his name. They accomplished that by working a remarkable miracle in the temple at the hour of prayer when throngs of pious and dedicated Jews would be nearby to see what was happening. And the miracle they worked was, like all the Bible miracles, a true wonder. A crippled man who had never walked from birth and was brought to this same place to beg for more than 40 years, thus well known to all the people in the city, had been healed 
and given such amazing strength that he was doing backflips and somersaults through the temple yard. And the Bible says that as the people turned their heads to see what was going on, they knew that it was he who sat bagging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. That's Acts chapter 3 and verse 10. Well, after he cooled from his acrobatic fervor, he evidently began to embrace the apostles and to thank them for what they had done. In fact, the Bible says, picking up in verse 11, Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, the word implies that he was clinging to them even as they walked. Perhaps his arms were locked in with theirs, and likely he was wailing with excitement. The Bible says that when he was first healed, he had the proper reaction to praise God, but now he may have shifted his adoration, as is common, to the messengers. This seems to be what happened because the verse continues, all the people ran together to them. A huge crowd was trampling over one another to get a better look at what was happening. And they met the apostles in the porch, which is called Solomon's. And to get a sense of this area, Professor Gareth Reese gives this description from testimony of those who saw it themselves. Along the whole eastern side of the temple enclosure was a porch or roof extending from the top of the wall back into the temple area. This roof was held up by two rows of columns, 37 feet high. The whole porch was 60 feet wide. These huge covered porches would provide protection for the worshipers during the rainy season and shade during the hot summer months. It was called Solomon's Porch because when the temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, fragments of Solomon's temple were used in the construction of this porch. It was a popular location and evidently a good place to address a crowd. The Bible says that Jesus preached here during the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 10 and verse 23, and evidently it became a regular site for the early Christians to evangelize because we find them here again in subsequent chapters of the book of Acts. And just as those who first witnessed the healed man, the people who gathered together from other parts of the temple area to see what the commotion was about were greatly amazed, utterly astonished, and exceedingly astounded, as it reads in some other versions. Of course, this is a reasonable reaction to a miracle. They're called wonders because that's the effect they tend to inspire in their witnesses. Some scholars suppose that the apostles had been performing several other miracles before this one because of the mention of many wonders and signs in Acts 2 and 43, but it is possible that this event is not chronologically subsequent to the last section of Acts 2, but instead, as we mentioned at the outset of our study, it simply gives more of a focused view of some of the things Luke mentioned as specimens of the Christian life. So this might have been the first miracle of this sort worked since the crucifixion of Jesus. We wonder if that event had not cooled the expectation that filled the countryside during the ministries of John the Baptist and later of Jesus himself. In those days, people were expecting miracles, and they were looking for the Messiah. Everywhere Jesus went and did his mighty works, the people would say, could this be the son of David? But when he was crucified, that was very unchristlike in the thinking of the Jews in that day, so perhaps they were not expecting any more miracles when suddenly they saw another. Whatever the case, the Bible says that Peter was troubled by their reaction. 
Verse 12, so when Peter saw it, that is, he saw the people assembling and deduced either from their expressions or from what they were saying, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why are you so amazed as though you should not understand what's happening or what this means? As the disciples asked Jesus when they did not recognize him on the Emmaus Road, everyone in Jerusalem knew about the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a mighty prophet in deed and word before God and all the people, Luke 24 and verse 19. Had these people so quickly forgotten the wonderful things that had been taking place across the land for the past three years? Peter continues, or why look so intently at us? That phrase is the same that Luke used to describe the disciples gazing up into heaven when Jesus ascended. Why gaze awestruck at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The great dread of a true gospel preacher is that he will somehow get in the way of Jesus, either through undeserved accolades or through personal shortcomings. Peter had been clear when he healed the man that it was in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth the great gift was given. But it is probable that the man himself did not fully register that statement or its meaning, much less the others who were going on about their business and not paying much attention at that time. So Peter makes it very clear. We are not the mighty ones or the holy ones here. It was not us and our power that caused this to happen. Then Peter begins to do what the apostles and Jesus before them always did after working a miracle. He climbed up on top of the miracle and used it as a platform to preach the gospel in all of its raw, convicting power. Verse 13, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant. Peter introduces the God of the gospel as the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, his sermon on this occasion is copiously laced with Old Testament references and allusions. He calls Jesus the servant of God. You may note some translations say his son or his child, which is a possible translation of this word, but not the most common. And the translations that choose servant do so not because of some animus against the deity of Christ, but because in this context it seems more likely that Peter has in mind the servant of God prophesied in the book of Isaiah, who would bear the sins of the people, and through his suffering and rejection by them, would be exalted and lifted up to be very high, said Isaiah 52 and verse 13. Peter says that the servant who would suffer for his people was Jesus himself, and that just as God predicted through Isaiah, he had glorified Jesus had made Jesus count for something. The word literally means that God had given him divine glory, that he should be worshipped. But this was a chilling message for Peter's audience because when Jesus was in their midst and in their hands and at their mercy, what did they do? Peter reminds them whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. A godless, wicked, murderous Gentile king was pleading with Israel to show mercy to their own Messiah. He had decided to release him. But the Bible says they overcame him with a prevailing voice and offered their own children as collateral in the intensity 
of their bitterness and bloodlust. Verse 14, But you denied the Holy One and the just. The Holy and Righteous One was a messianic title from the ancient scriptures, particularly from Psalm 16 and verse 10. It was normally a title for God himself, and when used in a messianic sense, it was a powerful indicator of the divine nature of Messiah. But in this place, Peter seems to use it to contrast the spotless character of Jesus, who the people rejected and disowned, and asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life. The title Prince of Life literally means the author of life, or the leader, or captain, or conductor, who came to guide us into life. But they killed him. They killed the life giver. Then the finish, whom God raised up from the dead, of which we are witnesses. It may be easy to read this last statement as a mere afterthought, but it is in fact the cardinal point of the sermon. It separates the grim opening from the glorious finish. Man rejected, man missed, man flubbed, man failed, man killed their Savior and Messiah, but God raised him from the dead. We know it because Peter saw it with his own eyes. And we know it because after he ascended into heaven, he manifest his glory on earth. Thus Peter returns to the miracle and says, the reason you shouldn't be astonished at this wonderful work is that Jesus had been healing cripples for the past three years. And this was just more of the same. It is nearly a sarcastic message, like the angels who asked the women at Jesus' tomb, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you marvel at this wonder? It's Jesus, who God raised up, doing what he was so well known to do. Verse 16, And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, who you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. The New King James Version structure is a little cumbersome and difficult to follow, so allow me to read again from the New American Standard Version. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Let's break that down because that's a long and complex sentence. On the basis of faith in his name, the name of Jesus stands for the authority of Jesus derived from the glory of his person. He is the risen Savior whom God has given glory and divine honor. Peter says, because of faith in the risen Jesus, this once lame person is healed. It's very important to understand that the word faith in this context is not what the Bible calls saving faith, but rather a faith associated with the working of miracles, which was itself a supernatural gift given by the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 9, or as Peter calls it, the faith that comes through him. Peter is saying that it was not his own strength, but his trust in the risen Jesus that caused the man to rise and walk at his words. Verse 17, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. What does Peter mean by this? He means that they did not know that Jesus was the Messiah. 
That's surprising to us, especially that the rulers did not know who were the wise and learned men. They should have known. It's not a weakness on the part of Jesus or God, but it is a part of the great mystery of the gospel, that he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. And through that rejection, God worked out the plan of redemption. Verse 18, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. By his amazing providence, God worked through the hands of Christ's rejectors to save them and the whole world. Neither this ignorance nor God's overturning the action for his purposes justified them. They knew he was a righteous man. They knew he was a man sent from God, a prophet at the very least, and they murdered him. Even so, Peter's point is that the most heinous sin Israel ever committed when they crucified their Messiah was a sin of ignorance, and therefore God would be merciful to them, and God would forgive them if they would accept him now. So Peter continues in verse 19, Repent, therefore, because God has been merciful to you, because God has accomplished his purpose in spite of and even through your rejection of his servant, because God has raised his servant up to a throne of glory, on this basis the reasonable thing for you to do is not merely to stand in awestruck wonder, but to repent, to change your hearts through remorse over the wrong you've done and give your loyalty to Jesus and be converted. The passive translation of this word is unfortunate because what Peter mentions here is not merely an experience, it is an action. It literally means to turn or to return to a path from which one has wandered, to turn away from a certain way of living and to forsake it. How can this be done? We remember Peter's words in Acts 2.38 when another group of Jerusalem dwellers came under conviction through a similar sermon and asked what to do, Peter answered, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. We have good reason to suppose, then, that his admonition to be converted necessarily included a command to be baptized and identifies baptism as the event in which our lives turn around and become new. As he said in Acts 2.38, that the one who repents and is baptized will have his sins put into remission or forgiven. He describes here some of the wonderful blessings that will accompany conversion to Christ. First, he says that your sins may be blotted out. This is a common metaphor in the Old and New Testament scripture for forgiveness. Reese says that the word referred to writing on tablets covered with wax and then by inverting the stylus, smoothing the wax again with the blunt end, thus removing every trace of the writing. as a dreadful warning that our names may be blotted out of the book of life. But if we will turn to Jesus, our names will be secure there, and it is our sins that will be blotted out of the book of remembrance. Second, he says in verse 20, "...so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord." These words, like so much of Peter's sermon here, lean on the language of the Old Testament prophets for their meaning. Isaiah 20 and verse 12 uses the idea of rest and refreshment to describe the blessings God wished to give to his people. In the parallel of Acts 2.38, Peter promised the gift of the Holy Spirit, which 
we took to mean participation in all the blessings of Messiah's kingdom, and this expression seems to carry the same idea in its own beautiful language. Conversion to Christ brings pardon for sin and renewal of the soul by a full and precious fellowship with God through Jesus the Messiah in the Holy Spirit. Finally, Peter says, verse 21, that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. There's some difficulties in this passage. Essentially, the passage seems to be teaching a wonderful truth that permeates the whole message of the Bible concerning the reign of Jesus Christ. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he ordered and equipped his people on earth to expand his reign throughout the whole creation. It is the will and purpose of God for Christ to reign and intercede from heaven until, by the forward progress of the gospel, he has put all enemies under his feet. And the time for the ultimate consummation and restoration of all things, the redemption of all creation, arrives when the last enemy, death, will be defeated in the resurrection and the new world of glory will begin. When you come to Christ, you hasten that day. When you bring others to Christ with you, you hasten that day by expanding the kingdom of Jesus as it is destined and foreordained to expand until the earth shall be full of the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the waters that cover the sea and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Verses 22 through 23. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. What Peter shows by quoting this prophecy is that not only is the God of the gospel the God of the Old Testament, but the gospel itself is the hope and end of the Old Testament. The Jews understood this to be a messianic prophecy, and they were searching and waiting for the prophet. You can see that in John chapter 1 and verse 21. Moses said that the prophet would be like him. Whatever else that might entail, it seems to refer to the fact that Moses was a lawgiver. So would the next prophet be a lawgiver so that the people would be obliged to hear him. That's precisely what God the Father thundered at the Mount of Transfiguration in the presence of Moses and Elijah. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Peter uses the Greek rather than the Hebrew for this passage so that the end is especially terrible. Every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. To reject Jesus is to reject the Christ, and that is the absolute end of the people. In 1829, Alexander Campbell engaged with the rabbi of the largest synagogue in America in a fascinating interview on the major distinctives between Christianity and modern Judaism. In the course of the discussion, Campbell asked the rabbi, what was the most heinous offense against God which your nation, according to the tenor of your covenant or constitution, could commit? The rabbi responded that idolatry was the greatest national sin because it resulted in the Babylonian captivity. 
Campbell asked if after returning from that captivity, the Jews ever practiced idolatry as a nation again. The rabbi quickly responded, no, the people never fell into idolatry again after that time. Campbell then asked, then what sin could have led to the desolation of Jerusalem in AD 70, in which the temple and the priesthood were destroyed and the city was obliterated? and the people utterly scattered to the point of having no country to call their own even to the present day. The rabbi claimed there was no way of knowing, but he said the sin must have been very grievous, to which Campbell pointed out the heavy and obvious truth that this took place only 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus and after the nation as a whole had rejected his teachings and Moses himself declared it would happen. But at this point, early in those 40 years between the crucifixion of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem, Peter pled with his countrymen to come to the hope of Israel in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. A scholarly disagreement as to why Peter chose Samuel to start the list. Some argue that he was the first prophet after Moses. That's debated. Perhaps it was because Samuel began a school of prophets in which he trained up successors. And Peter says to his audience, you are the sons of the prophets. Not that they were prophets themselves, but that they were the heirs of all that the prophets had foretold concerning Messiah and his kingdom. He says, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Apostle Paul would expound on this theme extensively and demonstrate how the church of Jesus Christ are true descendants of Abraham because we share his faith in the promise of God, which is Jesus Christ our Lord. Peter closes in verse 26 with a beautiful invitation. To you first, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. To you first. As God had promised to the fathers, Jesus came first to the Jews, both in his own person and in the preaching of his apostles. But the word first implies that there's more. In Jesus, all the families of the earth will be blessed, and what is the blessing? Great wealth, great possessions, a large family, earthly power? No, something much more precious. Turning every one of you away from your iniquities. We are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior who lives, who reigns, who loves, and who saves all that will repent and turn to him. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is part of the Growing Biblical Studies program of Tulsa. To learn more, visit our website, bspoftulsa.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way, while we do.
for we do his good will. He abides with us still. He abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey. 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 Trust and do